You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Just a quick note. This series deals with sexual assault, so please keep that in mind when you decide when and where to listen. Here's where we left off. Lily, I know you left the psychedelic world, and I I would love for you to talk about the moment where it went from being something safe and something growthful and beautiful to something treacherous and uh, bad. Oh boy, that shit was dark. Like, there's so much. (laughs) The turning point was actually when I had been deeply hurt. And the response I got was, if I told the story of what had happened to me, if I kept beating this drum, that I was going to single-handedly destroy the psychedelic renaissance. From New York Magazine, this is Cover Story. I'm Io Tillett-Wright. On the off chance that you've never heard of Burning Man, picture 50,000 people in thongs and goggles and furry leg warmers on Technicolor Mad Max bicycles, dancing and tripping in the middle of the Nevada desert. All vehicles there have to be approved by the DMV, the Department of Mutant Vehicles. I am not kidding. Hundred-foot sculptures of sharks and fantasy creatures roll through a temporary city, erected and deconstructed every year in celebration of radical self-expression. Naturally, it's been a magnet for psychonauts of all kinds, and a beacon of outsider culture. But just over a decade ago, tech people started flocking. They were interested in mind optimization, starting to microdose. They wanted shamans to come to their mansions to guide private journeys. That was all part of how the modern psychedelic renaissance started. And Lily was there for it. Literally, in 2008, she's at Burning Man and slightly annoyed by this one tech guy. And this really creepy guy was like hitting on me. She's there attending some lectures on cool new psychedelic research. One of the things he was puffing himself up about was like he was a wealthy guy and, you know, funding psychedelic research and whatever. None of that money shit impresses Lily. Oh, there's these researchers and they're trying to do blah 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 At this point in her life, she's already into critiques of money and power and authority. She's thinking about how that stuff plays out in the psychedelic world. All these white people appropriating indigenous cultures, questions about who profits... By 2011, that's a lot of what she's studying at Harvard. I was like nerded out hardcore on post-colonial theory. That's when she hears about a project in the Ecuadorian Amazon that piques her interest. An indigenous community wants audio equipment to tell their own stories. Which I thought was really cool. 
even though it was sort of tangential to like the guide work and the things that I felt really called to and pulled to, it was like this was also a, something I was very passionate about and interested in. In 2012, she gets a grant to go for the summer. She's going to be working with a local guy who was leading the project there. The man who was hosting me and was um, also an ayahuasca shaman, which I didn't know until like a few days before I was going down there. Should we go to the Amazon? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. So I got on the plane. It was like six in the morning and then got in to Ecuador late that night. And then I woke up in the morning and I took a taxi across town to a bus depot. The taxi ride was like an hour. The bus was like eight. And we went out of the Andes, down the mountain, into the Amazon. This is when Lily first saw the guy she was there to work with, someone we're going to call T. She describes him as wearing black jeans and a button-down shirt, a rainbow beaded headband, and a giant anaconda skin necklace. He takes her on another two-hour bus ride. They walk across a bridge and then ride another bus up a mountain. And then finally... He kind of indicates to the bus driver who stops and lets us off. There's no bus stop and there's no city and there's no anything. I I don't know if you've gotten this impression yet, but like it was remote. You know, we were out there. There's one last car ride, the only taxi around. And he's agreed to take us out to the village. And we get out of this car and there I am with T in the dark And, like, the taxi drives off, and, like, here we are. Then we had to walk about a mile. It's literally four structures in the jungle. I was tired. I was thirsty. I was hungry. I was a bit relieved, I think, that, like, I didn't have to travel anymore. First, T sits her down and talks to her about the village, how their whole way of life is under threat, and that her role is to document it. Then he takes Lily to a hut with a little bed and a pallet for her stuff, and she finally gets to sleep. Two days later, she finds T doing a kind of cleansing plant bath on some of the men in the community. It's a ceremonial thing, and he wants to do one on her. It was like, well, this is clearly a thing that he does with people. I went into the hut, and I went to my bed, And I was wearing my undergarments, like he had said, and he came in and he had some kind of like very aromatic liquid that um, he'd put onto these branches, like leaves. So he covers me head to foot in this stuff. And then he says, you know, just wait here and, and, and put your clothes back on and I'll be back in 30 minutes to come talk to you. And then everything just became very, very weird. Like it felt like my eyes were drying and my mouth was drying and the walls were doing this like pulsy, wavy thing. And I was alone, so I got up and I walked to the door and I was having a really hard time standing up. 
And he saw me standing in the door and he rushed right over to me and he like kind of took me by the arm and led me back to the bed and kind of had me lie down. And um, and then he started on this whole thing where he was like telling me about, you know, our relationship and how this was all meant to be and that he's uh, that we're in love. That was like a thing that he declared at that time and that this was all the will of God. And I don't even believe in God. Like, what the fuck is going on? I couldn't move. Like, I was physically incapable of moving my body. And I really had no concept of what was happening. He was like sitting behind me and had wrapped his arm around my neck and like, he was humping me. He was like trying to kiss me. He was, and, and I, I just was like totally frozen. It took me about 10 minutes from the, my sense of time to collect myself and to turn away from him, which I finally did. And then he kind of got up and laughed and got into his bed and went to sleep. And there was silence. And then there were words, which is not how I usually talk to myself. And the words said, you have to run. You have to get out. You're being brainwashed. And I heard those words. And I honestly was just, I felt paralyzed. I was not the same person after that. Oh, this is hard. It was like he had commandeered my will. Like, I would have done anything that he told me to do. For the next few days, Lily felt like she was in a fog, not in control of her own thoughts, and totally attached to T. Utterly dependent on him, terrified to be away from him, terrified to be near him as well bewitched. Lily was there 26 days, and T raped her six times, though it took her months to call it that. She told me he kept repeating that their love was the will of God, the spirits, and his ancestors, that they were in danger, but if she stayed near him, he would keep her safe. He also started giving her ayahuasca. At some point, an American family came to visit. They were taking their kids on a South America tour, and a local suggested they go off-road and visit a quote-unquote authentic village with a real-life shaman. The mom in the family, her name is Ainley Dixon. Ainley and Lily got friendly right away. After a while, I just... I mean, I realized that she was really out of it. I mean, she was really stilted and kind of stoned and uh but in a kind of zombie like way i was a shell by that point and then um it felt like somebody else had taken over my brain we had our conversation and that's when i realized something was really wrong i had pulled aside the mom at one point and been like we went up to the kind of a crawl space at the top of the hut where no one could find us 
And she told me... So I have this sexual relationship with this guy. That the shaman had told her that he had four wives and that he was going to leave them all and marry her. And that... It was like I was watching somebody else talk through my mouth. This is a person who I have a professional relationship, but then has come into my bedroom at night. And this is what happened. And da, 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 da. I was very taken aback. <laughs> Not only what she was saying, but the way she was speaking was very flat. I was trying to get somebody to help me. But I wasn't in a place where I could articulate, I think I need help. I mean, this is the ultimate in isolation. I think something bad is happening. She saw nobody. She only saw the, the three or four people who were in this little compound. Meanwhile, like he was telling me overtly, like, I'm going to get you pregnant and we're going to have all these children and you're going to live in the Amazon. And I was like, you know, honey, I think you might not trust everything he's telling you. And she seemed a bit like, oh, yeah, I could. I mean, he's handsome. Like, I could see it. Like, just, you know, be careful and don't get too caught up. So Ainley and her family leave and Lily's still in the village. A couple of days later, T takes Lily to his wife's house in a city about an hour away. She borrows his computer to check her email and sees that she has a message. So I get this email from Ailey Dixon, and it says, Hey, Lily, I've been wondering about sending this email for a while and finally decided to do it. While in the city, we, we met, met some, some people, and they seem to have a very different impression of T and not a good one at that. Ainley basically lays out that once she left the village, she couldn't get Lily out of her mind. She'd started poking around, asking questions about tea, and what the locals told her was really dark. The indigenous group he is part of themselves find him to be a disgraceful charlatan wearing a jaguar skin, exaggerated feather headdress, exaggerated face paint, and playing supposed native music with non-native guitars and charangas. Some of what they said was too fantastical to believe, such as being mixed up in trading shrunken heads and a local leader being killed when he tried to investigate. T was actually investigated in connection with that killing, but he was never charged. Some Ecuadorian papers had covered it. As I was finally getting to the point of going, holy shit, like, I think this guy is a murderer. Um... I started to hear his footsteps walking up the footpath. Which is where this becomes like an escape scene in a movie. In a split second, Lily comes up with a story about her dad being sick. I've just heard from the doctors and my dad's in the hospital and there's something wrong with his prostate and I'm really, really scared. She tells T that she needs to stay in the city for the night to sort out the details and she convinces him. She frantically makes a call and gets American Airlines to waive the change fee and put her on the next flight she can catch. And in the morning, she makes a break for it. I was looking over my shoulder every step of the way as somebody following me. With nothing more than her purse, which at the last minute she'd thrown her passport into, Lily hops on a bus, gets herself to the airport, on a plane, and to her family in L.A. The further I got away from him and the village, the more that I felt like, this is real and some really bad stuff has just happened. But it's what happened next that actually changed the course of Lily's life. 
That's after the break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Cover Story from New York Magazine. My dad picked me up from the airport and... I remember how warm his hug was. Got home and took a shower and did everything I could to just feel normal. You know, put on my favorite clothes and my favorite earrings and, you know, tried to do what I could to have like a sense of my identity um, and myself again. For a while, Lily was just trying to make sense of what happened to her. Like, was this a consensual relationship? You know, there were periods where I did resist it. And I was really clear, like, this is not what I want. She went in circles. When I went to the crisis center for my intake, I was sort of like, are they even going to take me? Because, like, I don't know if what I went through counts. It took Lily months and months before she even talked to her dad about what happened. And I remember what I said to him. I said, you know, during my time in the Amazon, T was raping me. And dad was kind of just there for me. You know, Lily, like, I've tried to say this before, but, like, I really think he drugged you. You know, at first I was like, I was very resistant. I was like, well, I took ayahuasca, but that was after, and it was this whole other thing. And and he kept kind of pressing the issue. That was when something started to dawn on me. Well, there was that one night where I was like paralyzed and everything was going all wompy and wonky and weird. And, and then I remembered that he had covered my body with this liquid thing had this conversation with dad, realized I had been drugged, you know, got on the phone, did some research, went, oh my holy fucking God, like, this is so much worse than I thought it was. This makes so much more sense. This asshole drugged me and, like, actually brainwashed me. Lily came to believe that the plant bath contained this drug called scopolamine, which, after our interview, I had to look up. I highly recommend you give it a Google yourself because this drug is absolutely bad shit. They call it the zombie drug because high doses can put you in a state where it's hard to assert your free will. Gangsters love it because people will just hand over their bank card or car keys when they demand them. By the way, New York Magazine called T and he denied drugging or raping Lily. He basically said in his culture it was quote-unquote natural to have sex with lots of women, but said it was never by force. But after that conversation with her dad and her research, Lily was clear. This man had used his authority as a shaman in combination with drugs to control and rape her. Okay, the idea of someone from anywhere, any culture, using these drugs to control another person it makes me think about something Dr. Charles Grobe told me. 
Remember that UCLA researcher who took us to Mr. Rogers' psychedelic neighborhood? He was telling me about some research he did in 93, observing how ayahuasca was used in religious ceremonies in the Amazon, and he noticed the particular way this minister-type guy in this one group would use the drug. Once his congregants were in a suggestible state of mind from the ayahuasca, he would give them life tips. You know, to be responsible to their spouses, to their own parents, to their children, to their employers, to their employees, across the board. You know, I remember one night I, I, I was at a ceremony and my translator had kind of lapsed off. So I gave her a nudge and I, I asked, what are they talking about? So she says, oh, so what they're talking about is how important it is that if you say you're going to be someplace at a certain time, you be there. And I thought, oh my God, this does explain a lot. The individuals in this religion, some of whom had started at the bottom rungs of the socioeconomic ladder, had risen to positions of, of, of community respect and had been successful in business, in their family lives. And I thought, wow, so much seems to have to do with this heightened receptivity they had. These drugs can give a person so much power to influence others. So the thing to look at is, how do they use that power? And what are they influencing others to do? In the next breath, Dr. Grobe was reminding me of a story I already know, that you probably know too, about a famous group of Californians in the 1960s. Yeah, you have an old example of the Manson family. You know, he would dole out LSD to his followers, and then he would launch into these bizarre fantasy-ridden speeches that eventually led to their following his instructions to go out and commit murder and mayhem. It was a horrible situation, but I, I think probably a telling example of what could happen when these compounds are employed by an unscrupulous, unethical, immoral cult leader. Basically, Dr. Grobe was warning me, these drugs can be tools to manipulate people, whether among all the different groups in the Amazon or in the overwhelmingly white underground world of psychedelics that Lily was part of. And that's the worry that would start to bubble up for Lily after she came out of the very dark hole she felt stuck in. I was quite fixated on what had happened. I was not sleeping at night and sleeping during the day, and I am in a lot of pain, and I am like drinking too much whiskey and... It was just kind of all pain all the time. Eventually, Lily started talking to her circle of friends about it, and it went fine. They were totally sympathetic and horrified. But then she started to go and tell people in the psychedelic community. You know, at that point, I, I considered psychedelics part of what was helping me heal. So, you know, it actually seemed to me like a way to be like, you know, be nuanced and be like, look, like there's this potential and then there's this other darker potential and you know, let's consider that. But um, it was the people that were tied to, that I knew through psychedelics and psychedelic conferences and the Guild of Guides who were responding in really weird ways. The Guild of Guides, aka the Convivium, is that underground conference where people who practice psychedelic therapy met to discuss their work. Some of these people were saying things that really messed with Lily's mind. I was on the phone with somebody I had met at the Guild of Guides. He said something like, you can't call it rape because if you call it that, then you're giving all your power away. If you call it rape, then you make yourself a victim. It did not get better from there. 
people didn't say like, well, this is your fault, you know? They said things like, you manifested this experience so that you could grow as a person. What if he did what he did to heal you? That reshapes it as like a positive thing, you know? Oh, good on you. Aren't you such a brave soul? You gave yourself this opportunity for growth and healing. And she thought about that. Like maybe there was some weakness in her that he exploited. I wanted to figure out, um, was this mommy issues? Was this daddy issues? Was this, I'm looking for safety? Was there things about the fact that I, my mom had died that meant I was seeking something that I thought he could provide? Lily went around and around like that for a while. Do they suck or is it me? And eventually, it was this one particular line she heard from a few people that set something off in Lily. Oh, yeah, that's an old story. You know, shamans or people sleeping with their clients or whomever is like, this is an old story. Oh, this has been going on, you know, since the beginning. An old story that's been going on from the beginning? Meaning there are rapists in our midst and everyone knows it? When she put that chain of thoughts together, another part of Lily's brain kicked in. The skeptical, questioning part. The part of her that, throughout all her years in the psychedelic underground, had been a little concerned about certain dynamics between guides and their clients. Who are these people that are dispensing of these drugs to like What kind of training do they have? Is this wise? Is this a good idea? Is this safe? People would call themselves shamans? that one calls themselves. Are these people doing a good job? And who decides? Who decides who decides? Is there somebody that says you have the seal of approval that we know you're not a dick and you're competent in this? You know, um, and where do people go if they get hurt or if somebody does something wrong? To my mind, these realms are real and good intentions are not enough when it comes to claims to shamanic power. Lily gave this talk a couple months after she got home from the Amazon. And it's weird to listen to now because it's from a period when she was still in a daze and hadn't processed anything or even figured out the basics of what had happened to her. But in her words... You hear hints of a future, Lily. Reports of sexual transgressions and rape. Not being willing to address this, what does this say about us as a community who loves psychedelics, plant medicines, and what they have to offer us? If we don't talk about this, if we are silent, are we not then complicit? To Lily, these questions felt more important than ever. Because the psychedelic renaissance was becoming an actual thing which meant that more and more vulnerable people might be turning to psychedelic guides, which meant that what happened to Lily could happen to them. But the guides themselves, some of them seemed focused on a different danger, which became clear to Lily during this twisted conversation with a woman who was known as a teacher and a scholar, an advisor to a lot of important groups and a well-respected elder. Lily told her that she wanted to speak to the press about the danger of abuse. She gave me this whole lecture about how if she was a young woman and saw this opportunity for the spotlight herself, she probably would have taken it and like, you know, what an opportunity it could be for me personally. And she understood why I was tempted by it. But if I told this story in a public way, I would be single-handedly reinstigating the war on drugs and undoing decades of research 
and pretty much just like kill the psychedelic renaissance or revolution and that that would be on me. And I said to her, this is happening to hundreds of women. And she said, I know. And then she just went right back to, you know, you're doing this for your own ego. You want the spotlight, but you have to think about the wider consequences here and like what you stand to destroy if you, you know, tell this story. When we talked to this woman, she said that none of this sounds like something that she would say. And at the time, she didn't know that many women were being victimized. Though she added that the more she's looked over the years, the more she knows. Her memory of this specific conversation is different. But Lily went to some of the heaviest hitters, some of the central people in pushing psychedelics into the mainstream. And across the board, she remembers, they responded more or less like this. Don't play into the war on drugs. They will take your story and twist it. And there's too much at stake, Lily. Healing for the millions. Francoise Bourzat, the woman from the Guild of Guides, later referred to this period in an email as Lily's, quote, community rejection. Lily tried one more person, someone she'd been really close to for years. Lily told her how angry she was at this other elder, the one who'd just told her she was going to kill the psychedelic renaissance. She said, don't be mad at her. She was only, you know, worried about you and what you were going to do. We all were. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. What I heard in that moment was, all y'all have been talking to each other to try to figure out how to manage me. This feels like I am at my most vulnerable. And I'm really trying to address this in some way that's going to help me stay alive. And I would suspect that like, if she heard my account, she would be horrified, you know? And probably has like a very different telling of what it was like for her and what she was trying to do and why she was trying to do it. But I was so hurt and I felt so betrayed and I felt manipulated and managed and deceived. I was fucking done. I deleted all my social media. I got off the ayahuasca researchers listserv. I was done with the psychedelic community. I was just, I was done. Bye-bye, no more, good job, all gone. Lily spent the next few years out of the scene, basically researching why even nice people who mean well will blame rape victims. You know, I think part of how I have survived this experience is by putting my brain on it. <laughs> just put my brain on it and try to understand and, and eventually shifting the focus away from me. She got into a PhD program. She was reading a lot, testing out her ideas, trying to figure out why things that seem so helpful and healing turn inward, get stronger, are a problem. Often the language of the journey comes in. People make a journey away from victimhood and towards survivorship that's focused on them as a person overcoming whatever bad things happened to them. My main issue with that is that it, it really focuses on individuals solving social problems by healing themselves. 
Heal this within yourself. As in, don't think about the system. Which, during her studies, in the years after she left the psychedelic world, Lily came to understand as total bullshit. And then, one day, deep into her PhD research, she gets this email from a stranger. It was a group email sent to a bunch of people, but it landed hard with Lily, and it's basically the reason the show exists. Presumably, I was sitting in this room, uh, my office, and um, opened my email. Hi there. If you're getting this message from me, it's because I value your opinions and perspectives within the psychedelic arena and quite likely beyond. It said something about, like, sexual misconduct in psychedelic spaces. I'm shocked and horrified at how successful they've been at this attempt to shut down communal discourse and keep awareness of these events to a minimum. Here was a person that was saying, like, hey, I'm here for this conversation. Like, be in touch if you want. No pressure. Lily had given up on all this stuff. She'd sworn it off. But something about the tone of this email stuck with her. And six months later, she found herself on Skype with the person who sent it. A guy named Dave, about her age, who'd also been deep in the underground. And we had a a good conversation, you know. He cared a lot about the issues. He seemed to know quite a lot. David actually remembered the talk Lily gave after she came back from Ecuador. And he wanted to tell her about other things that he knew. Not about shamans in the Amazon, but about people Lily had schmoozed with at the Guild of Guides. Like this one guy who surrendered his medical license all the way back in the 1980s. Several of his clients accused him of sexually abusing them after he gave them MDMA or ketamine as part of their treatment. The Boston Globe reported in 1989 that one woman said he told her sexual contact was necessary to cure her cancer. And yet... There he was, at influential psychedelic gatherings, hosting conferences, and inviting Lily to join. I don't, like, I I don't understand why nobody from the Guild of Guides and nobody in that context was giving me any warnings about this person. Long story short, Lily did get involved. How do I introduce you? <laughs> you were just all gung ho about it. I know, two I know, ago. but it's like, well, yeah. Now you gotta, now you gotta reduce me to a handful of words. That's right. Well, Dave is the love of my life. Dave is an anarchist and a drug nerd, and a person who's been willing to brawl for victims. His full name is Dave Nichols, and he's definitely a brawler. He talks a lot, even when what he's saying pisses people off. Plus, he's a menace at collecting proof and data and testimonies. He made Lily see the scale and urgency and how this was not at all an old story, but something that was still happening right now. So Dave and Lily became a couple and then a team of investigators. But this is how it is. Like, this is this how is it's how always it's been. been. Right. Like, the people who were silencing me when all I wanted to know was, how do I do this in a way that doesn't damage psychedelics? And together, just as the whole world seemed to be staring into psychedelics' spirally eyeballs, hailing them as a silver bullet for our most vulnerable, Dave and Lily started digging, dredging up a whole bunch of stuff. Not just about sexual abuse, but about power 
and manipulation and cults and the medical establishment and a whole bunch of other crazy weird shit. During the course of Lily's whole long effort to get people talking about the potential for abuse in psychedelic therapy, there was one person who did seem open. It was the same woman who'd brought up her own transgression at the first Guild of Guides meeting Lily attended, Françoise Bourzat. She said she'd crossed boundaries in the past and had learned her lesson. It was one of the few conversations where I didn't feel attacked or minimized. It seemed like Françoise was one of the good guys. Hello. Yes, I imagine. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hello. Cover Story is a production of New York Magazine. Power Trip is co-created, produced, and reported by David Nichols and Lily K. Ross. It is hosted and produced by me, Io Tillett-Wright. Our senior producers are Marianne McCune and Whitney Jones. Also produced by Taka Zen and Liza Yeager. Our executive producer and editor is Hannah Rosen. Music by Lynx Demuth and John Ellis. Cover Story's theme music is by Santi Gold. Sound design and engineering by Mike Cruz and Sharif Youssef. Fact-checking by Bertina Cheng and Ted Hart. Special thanks to Legal Minds' Alyssa Cohen and Samantha Mason. And also to Isabel Don, Rachel Monroe, and Genevieve Smith. Power Trip is also produced with Symposia, a nonprofit watchdog group. For a deeper dive into some of these issues, visit symposia.com slash powertrip.